Okay, guys, why don't we uh, turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Uh, no, it's not sermon time. Uh, but it is, um, let, me, let me just say this here. We're, we're, if you have your notes or if you've been looking at the notes, today we're going to look at the exegetical foundations for the covenant of redemption. And I just want to give you the, some of the verses, some of the passages that are sort of like the key go-to texts that you really want to study when you're thinking about this. When it comes to the Psalms, uh, you're looking at um, many, many passages. But for example, what we're going to look at is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to look at Psalm 89 and Psalm 110. Okay. Then on top of that, another very crucial text is a text out of Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Um, that, that's that's going to come kind of really right out of the Psalms. And then uh, as we go to the New Testament, there are so many New Testament passages we can go to, but really Ephesians chapter 1, I guess we can say verses 3 um, all the way to verse 6, I guess, uh, because there's so much more, but what we're going to focus on today. Um, Let's see here. No, let um, let me go ahead and give you this, the whole paragraph or the whole sentence. Remember I told you guys before, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, one long Greek sentence, right? Uh, I think according to F.F. F. Bruce, or one of the commentaries I read, it's the longest Greek sentence in all antiquity, uh, which is Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Amazing, right? And then the other one would be like 1 Timothy. Uh, yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through uh, 10. And then, let's just say, the Gospel of John, because there's so many passages that you go to the Gospel. <laughs> text after text after text after text. So when we're talking about the covenant of redemption, just refresh our memory a little bit. What are we talking about? We're talking about a covenant that is has its origin in eternity. Uh, and when we say eternity, we do not mean that it that that the covenant is has been for all eternity but it originates in eternity. In other words, it is a pre-temporal covenant. It originates prior to Genesis chapter 1, right? And that's what Scripture is really going to be pointing us to. Um, When you think about this covenant, what we're saying is that this is a covenant that that is what is called an intra-Trinitarian covenant. It is a covenant between the members of the Trinity, and it has to do with redemption. And so what is the covenant? What is the content of the covenant? Well, the content of the covenant is that the covenant is uh, stipulating not only the objects of redemption, who God is going to save, but also the means of redemption, how God is going to save those whom he is going to save. And so that's kind of really what's involved in the covenant of redemption. Covenant of redemption also stipulates, and we'll look a little bit more at this, Lord willing, next week, but it also stipulates that each member of the Trinity has some sort of role, plays some sort of significant uh, role in the covenant of redemption. So Father, Son, and Spirit all have a certain role that they play. They all have, if you would, an agreement uh, as part of a commitment, if you would, to the covenant of redemption. And so then you take the concept, right, and then you ask yourself, is there any exegetical foundation for uh, the covenant of redemption? Well, first of all, if he, uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is ironically where we're at today uh, in our sermon. So I'll, I'll try to do this in such a way that it, when I get up there today, Lord willing, it doesn't sound too repetitive. 
Uh, we're going to touch on this one briefly, and then we're going to move on, okay? But here, this is a very interesting verse, because listen to what it says. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so the reason why theologians point to this passage of Scripture is very easy. is because there is, an, there is a typology that is involved here, as with all typology. Now, I was, <clears throat> let's see here, 29. I was kind of tempted to put this in, in, in a handout and send it out to you guys. But remember, I've done this for us so many times, right? I've done this sort of, of a graph and really, if you want to know where this comes from, this comes from Gerhardus Voss. In his little tiny book on the book of Hebrews, he sort of explains the nature of typology. This is really, really, really important because this is hermeneutics. This is how do we interpret Psalm 2? You see what I'm saying? What is going on? What's the dynamics that are going on in Psalm 2? And in all other passages of Scripture where typology is operative, where it is operating, where you see typology going on, this is the basic. Um, this is the basic pattern that typology follows, and we'll see this. Okay, but what we're saying here is that up here represents what we can say the heavenly archetype, and uh, good luck spelling that. But the heavenly archetype is, in a sense, the original. Hey, come on in. What? Tell you to do what? Just say hi. Hit and run. Okay. All right. The heavenly archetype, and then down here we have what we've called the historical type, right? The historical type, and then over here, this is what we can call um, the, and let's just leave it at this because it's kind of, this is what is called the anti-type. What is the anti-type? It is the fulfillment. That's right. Did I spell that right? It is the fulfillment. So what's going on here? We go from the heavenly archetype, which this is, this is also what we could call the pattern. Why do I want to call this the pattern? Somebody read for us really quick. Uh, Exodus, um, who's got a fast draw? Somebody, Robert, okay, Exodus chapter uh, 25, I believe it's verse 40. Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. Just to get the idea of a pattern, okay? Um, pattern is, is, is sort of dealing with the original Right. Whereas the historical type is what it's being patterned after. Okay. Uh, you got that? Yep. Okay. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Correct. And that is quoted again. That is recited again in Hebrews chapter eight, where where once we reach the fulfillment of what the priesthood was all about and the tabernacle was all about. The author of Hebrews tells the Hebrews, he tells them, remember what Moses said. Moses was directed that he had to follow the heavenly pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. But what was he talking about? He was talking about the tabernacle, right? That's what he was, that's what he was talking about, um, tabernacle. You get it, tabernacle. This is the earthly tabernacle, and Moses was told, make it according to the pattern. That was given to you on the mountain. But where does that pattern originate? Right here in heaven. Because once we get to the fulfillment, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says. That what Moses was doing when he built the tabernacle is he was fashioning something that was ultimately a reflection of of a heavenly reality. This is what's going on in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, when David says that he will tell of the decree of the Lord, you are my son, today I have begotten you, 
what we're seeing here, in essence, is the historical son reflecting a relationship from the heavenly son, right? And it's going, watch the arrow here. The historical son, David, the king, right, is going to point forward to something greater than himself, which is who? Jesus, the son. Now, when the, when the fulfillment comes, does the fulfillment correspond in terms of what this is? Does he, does he correspond to this? In other words, the reality of what has come in the fulfillment, is the reality ultimately pointing back to the historical type? In other words, when Jesus comes, what came when Jesus came? David? Absolutely not. So what has come is the heavenly reality down. You see what I'm saying? So this is, this is kind of the way that all typology works. So what, this is why this is really important. Because when you think about covenant theology, what we're saying is that all the historical covenants, all of them, have some sort of heavenly correspondence. Every covenant, I would argue, and so do many, is that every single covenant is made because God has some sort of heavenly principle that's operative in that covenant. So the Davidic covenant, same thing. Why does God make a covenant with David? Because he is in covenant with his king. Right? Why does God make a covenant with Moses? Because God has his, his law and his kingdom uh, and his theocracy that comes from heaven. What is, what is the covenant with Moses? The covenant with, with Moses was to stipulate uh, the, the law for the theocracy, for the people of Israel, and that was ultimately being reflected or is reflecting a heavenly reality. And therefore, when the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant comes, not only does it come in the New Testament, it's abrogated, it's done away with, it's surpassed by the New Covenant, but really it was all fashioned after the heavenly uh, reality. Anybody have a question about any of that? I know this is kind of a, this is, I was debating whether or not to mention this, but I thought this is really what you're operating on when you're working with any biblical covenant and in covenant theology in general, um, this is kind of what is going on here. Any questions? Yes, sir? Emilio, why the word antitype? Antitype just means uh, that it is, it's fulfilling the type, so it's what comes after the type is the fulfillment. Right? Like it's not a type. It's not against the type, yeah. Yeah, it's after the type. It's what comes after the type, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. You lost me with the son, uh-huh. the historical one. Is that David? You said David. That's right. That's right. All historical. So David. Think of it this way: David, tabernacle, temple, priesthood, sacrifice. Pick your pick your typological subject, right, and put it here. And then what you know is going to happen is you're going to find the fulfillment here in the antitype, right. And when you get to the fulfillment, what's happening when the fulfillment comes is that that is actually indicative of a heavenly intrusion, a heavenly correspondence, no longer corresponding to the earthly uh, type, right? Let me just make a a controversial argument here. Yes, sir? I I think it's A-N-T-E. I think that's why people were getting... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Sorry. You know how my spelling goes up here, right? Um, Okay, here... Anybody have a question about that? Yeah. That antitype is really <laughs> that guy over there. Fulfilling this. 
It's fulfill, the fulfillment of this, correct. But when this is fulfilled, what comes here is not another installment of this. It's an installment of this. You see what I'm saying? That's right. Um, anybody? Yes, sir. What is, now who is that? Who? Uh, David. David. That is David. Yeah, so Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. When he says, you know, I'll tell the decree of the Lord, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, real quick, just to fast forward a little bit. What this language is talking about is not, this is when Jesus was begotten. Uh, like this is when Jesus became the son of God. Absolutely not. Uh, matter of fact, the way, that this, uh, the way that this verse was used, it was used, and this, the whole psalm, Psalm 2, was used at the installment of kings. So at the coronation of a king, what would happen is that they would read Psalm 2 over the king and during his installation, and, and, and really what this ultimately was reflecting was what? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, when the Davidic covenant was actually given, right? When God says in 2 Samuel seven fourteen, he says, what? I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me, right? And then when he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of, of men, right? Something like that. So, so basically, two things are operative there. We know for a fact, based on the New Testament citation, New Testament cites uh, uh, Samuel. And so there's no question that uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 is messianic. It's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. But the part where it says when he commits iniquity, right, God will chastise him and correct him with a rod of men. What is that talking about? Because Jesus didn't sin. Of course not. But... In, in, in that uh, typological uh, passage, you still have the historical reality operating. So when Solomon or any other earthly king sinned, God would chastise them, but the, the, the office of kingship would go on. That's why in the New Testament, matter of fact, it's interesting, and I'll bring this up in my sermon, but in the New Testament, that second part of Second Samuel is not quoted in relationship to Christ when he commits iniquity. That's not mentioned, because of course it doesn't apply to him because he never sinned. Okay, so um, everybody get this? Clear as mud? Can I, can I yeah. Add something to it? Go ahead. Um, well, not no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert, yeah. The word um, anti-type is literally A-N-T-I. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. It's, it's one Either one, right? Okay. When, when we're done here, you guys, I want you guys to sit in the class and figure it out <laughs> for us. Yeah, I mean, you can finish the arrow, but the problem is, is that the heavenly, the heavenly reality is not coming down in the historical type. That's why, yeah, it's an image. It's a reflection, in other words, right? So up here is what is called the, um, and I use this word a lot now, but it's called the supernal realm, right? And supernal uh, is just is the opposite of earthly, right? So we're talking about heaven, but really it's more like the heavenly things, the, the things that belong to the heavenly realm, the thing that belongs to the heavenly economy of God. That is what's going on up here. That's the reality of heaven, right? I mean, think about the tabernacle, what it says in the book of Hebrews. It says that, you know, the Lord, you know, uh, went into the greater tent, which the Lord made, not man, right? So obviously that's talking about a heavenly 
uh, a heavenly reality that is operating in the heavenly realms and that that is what is being lived out in the life of Israel. Uh, Gerhardus Voss says that in the entire history of the life of Israel, the heavenly reality hovered over them. So think of it that way, that everything that they did in their life, because, I mean, I, you know, I remember reading the, the Old Testament for the first time thinking, this is, this is kind of weird stuff. There's like blood and turtle doves and slaughter and kill and spill the blood over here and sprinkle it over there. And I'm just like, I mean, we don't do that anymore, right? Like, <laughs> you know, as a 21st century man, well, that was 20th century, but, you know, as a modern man, we just don't talk about ephods and, you know what I mean, basins and altars and lavers and it makes absolutely no sense to us in one sense, right? But when we understand that the reason why God gave this pattern is because it corresponds to some heavenly reality. You see what I'm saying? I mean, just the whole tabernacle is... The tabernacle, if you do the typology and you work it out, the tabernacle, the temple, is heaven. And the, and the priest... When he wore the ephod, the ephod and the priest himself, his, the priest was a tabernacle. He was a temple. Uh, we don't have time for that. But there is a verse that would go along with that when Paul says to the, to the, to first, in 1 Corinthians to the believer, you are the temple, right? So there's all this temple theology that goes along with it. But, um, and then Jesus, of course also claims to be the temple, doesn't he? I will tear this temple down, right? And then what does the inspired interpreter say? He was speaking about the temple of his body. See what I'm saying? So he definitely, in other words, he was the, 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 the epicenter of, of, of true worship of God. Right? Those kinds of things. So uh, going on in... Uh, in, he, in uh, in, in Psalm chapter 2, uh, what we're basically getting is we're getting a reflection of the relationship that exists between Father and Son in heaven when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It is language of installation. It is not language of an ontological um, beginning. You guys know what I mean by that? This is, this is not talking about the creation of the Son of God. This is not talking about Jesus becoming the Son of God. This is speaking about God's decree to make his son king. And, and at the same time, that word decree, uh, where it says there, I will surely tell of the decree, hak al-hak, that, that word right there, actually in, in um, let me see if I have the reference here, I think it's Psalm 105, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have it here, but I'm almost certain. It's Psalm, I think it's Psalm 105, um, where that word decree is actually put in synonymous parallel in Hebrew to the word berit, which means covenant, right? So decree and covenant are very closely associated terms. And so really, um, uh, J.V. Fesco, for example, he would be one that would call this a covenantal decree, or he would use the terms interchangeably. I will surely tell of the covenant of the Lord, you are my son. And then, of course, when we correspond correspond this back to the foundation where, right, so no, no longer doing this. You guys need me to leave this up? 
We're going to come back to this. Uh, we're always going to come back to this. Uh, when you start seeing this, I'm even going to preach a little bit about that in my sermon, but um, when you think about Psalm 2, 7, and then the back of this is 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verse 14 on sonship, then you start realizing that, oh yeah, this is, this is God making a covenant with a historical man, David, as a reflection of a heavenly reality, Jesus, right? And, and that's exactly what you find all throughout, um, all throughout the New Testament. You find that this is actually what the New Testament authors uh, understood regarding this passage, that it was some sort of fulfillment. It was definitely a fulfillment of this. It was definitely messianic. So, Let's, yes, ma'am. Do you you think that um, David knew that this was, like, did he actually think, oh, yeah, I'm God's son? Or did he, like, know that it was pointing to the greater fulfillment? I think he knew that it was pointing to the greater fulfillment, and he understood that as king he was God's son, lowercase s. Yeah, that he was the son of God in a sense. There is, there are four technical sons of God in the Bible. You know who they are? Adam, number one. Where's that in the Bible? Where's that found in the Bible? Luke chapter 3, verse 39, okay. Um, Well, Israel. Israel is called God's son. Where's that at? Exodus chapter 4, verse, I think it's verse 19 and 20, right? Uh, Or maybe 20, 21, right? That's where where Moses tells Pharaoh, let my son go, my firstborn that he may worship me, so all of a sudden Israel becomes a corporate Adam, right? A new son of God, right? Who's another son in the Bible? Hint, we're looking at it. No, 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 no. David, that's right, you are my son. So the king is also a son of God in a technical sense. And then who's the last son of God? Jesus. That's right. So you have all this Son of God language. There's a really wonderful book that I just started reading by David Gardner. It's called Sons in the Sun. And it's all about sonship in the Bible and how we are God's sons too, you know? We're in the sun. That that kind of thing. Yes, sir? Is there any trace of that second Samuel? Chapter seven? That's a seven out of two. Come on, man. I'm using cali- Don't you know that I write in calligraphy up here? These are hieroglyphics. Special <laughs> 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 uh, Seven Samuel, yeah. Okay, so, uh, okay, quickly turn to Psalm 89. Just to, uh, now, now that we understand that, you know, uh, King and Yahweh and his king, Hamelech, the king, is in some sort of relationship with uh, Yahweh, um, definitely the father, because of course we're going father and son. And in uh, Psalm 89, the, re- the nature of this relationship is clearly stipulated in covenantal terms. Uh, look, at, look at verse 3. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my son. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Verses 3 to 4 there in uh, Psalm 89, that is the entire work of Christ, by the way. That's it. That, that's the whole, you're looking at the whole enchilada right there. You're looking at God's son building his kingdom. 
And that's what's going on on planet Earth today. And that is what is going to happen when we reach heaven, is that we're going to be dwelling in this kingdom, uh, his throne. He's going to build up this throne. Okay, we'll get, get, get back to the throne here uh, in a second. Look at verse 27. So quickly, uh, just thumb through some of these passages, right? Uh, verse 27, I'll also make... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Before we leave three, look, look at the language there of... Because remember, we, 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 we used uh, uh, definitions of what is a covenant. We actually defined what is a covenant, right? And one of the definitions coming back was Meredith Klein's definition because it's so small, so short, so succinct, and it's so good. His definition of a covenant is called an oath-bound commitment. I think that's a great definition. It's quick, it's easy, and it's accurate, and it reflects the biblical data. Look at what he's saying here. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn. So there he's making an oath. So not only berit, uh, but shava, the, the word for swear, to make an oath or to swear. Uh, he uses these terms when you're in covenant context like this. So, so God makes this unbreakable oath to, to, to make certain commitments to his king, David, which we understand, obviously, to be typological of Christ. Verse 27, I also shall make him my firstborn. See that? The highest kings, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. As the days of heaven. Uh, Psalm 89, verse, verse 34 now. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness. That's, that's really interesting, right? Kind of like the, what is the moral, what is the moral ethical principle undergirding God's oath, God's swearing? God's commitment, his holiness. He says, I will not lie to David. He says, his descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Wow, interesting. Isn't that amazing? The, the way that creation works. God created everything for what? To testify of his covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why. Right? As you see the stars, the moon, the sky, as you see the, the creation around you, you see the order, you see the, you see the, the um, you know, the, for lack of a better term, but the law of uniformity of nature. When you see these things going on, they should testify to you and I that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, God is going to keep his covenant promise until he does away with the sun and then he makes a new one. Or he re- renews it. That's a whole nother debate. That's right, Landon's smiling at me down here. So he knows there's a debate with that. <clears throat> um, okay, verse 49, uh, just to Psalm 89. It says, where are, he says, Where are your former loving, loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all my peoples, with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because here we see that the king is also appointed to suffer. He's appointed to have adversaries. Uh, what does the covenant of David show us? The, the covenant of David shows us that in the covenant of redemption, if it reflects the covenant of redemption, what we're being told is that part of the covenant of redemption includes the suffering of the son. So that as um, he reaches his place of exaltation, he does so through the path of suffering. So this is why theologians speak of, of God's um, 
uh, you know, the, the God's redemption in, in association with the dual estates of Christ, his suffering and his exaltation, things like that. Turn to Psalm 110. Let's just keep going. And um, I thought, boy, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to, how far we're going to get in any of these passages. But I just want to expose us to some of the material. Also, Psalm 110, which is really remarkable because you get all the way to Psalm 110 and you get some more information here about the Son of God, some more uh, connections, um, some more intertextuality, meaning Scripture proving Scripture, Scripture connected to Scripture, uh, the analogy of the faith working out here. Um, uh, yeah, it's very complex. Um, it's a whole web of textual texts that go together for this. But let's just read Psalm 110 uh, in its entirety. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Um, most would claim that um, that verse 1 right there is the most uh, quoted, often quoted New Testament verse in all of the New Testament. So in other words, the New Testament quotes Psalm 110 verse 1 more than any other verse of the entire Old Testament. It's that verse right there. Right? Talking about the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God. The Lord will stretch forth his strong uh, scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Well, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. I would also say that the, the, the people volunteering in holy array, I think you can make a case there for something like a kingdom of priests, which ultimately goes back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, which is ultimately um, going forward to Revelation chapter 5, verses five, uh, 9 through 10. Uh, at least these are text I can remember, but in verse 4 it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. See that language again of swearing, making an oath. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's where you're supposed to pump the brakes, and everything's supposed to screech and come to a halt and go, wait a minute. (laughs) What do you mean the king is going to be a priest? I thought the king was the king, and priests were priests. But here you're saying that the king is also going to sit or, or to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> so you have someone sitting on the throne who is also a priest? And then, and then, that's right, Mike, and then he says that this priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek. And so you guys have heard me probably talk on this so much as we went through Hebrews, but this is the first time in all of Holy Writ, all of Scripture, 1,000 years after Melchizedek came on the scene in Genesis chapter 14, this is the first time anybody in the Bible is talking about Melchizedek again, which should be cause us to pause and go, whoa, why? Right? Why here? You see what I'm saying? Because Melchizedek was, he was created for this purpose. <laughs> he w- don't make me do the triangle again. <laughs> now that you guys got the theology, right? We have the historical Melchizedek. Where's that at? Genesis. Genesis 14. Who does he? Who is he a type of? He is a type of Christ, right? Um, um, yeah, let's just put Christ for now, right? And you see that fulfilled all over. But like, for example, Hebrews chapter seven, right? Turn there, Hebrews chapter seven, please. Hebrews chapter seven, quickly. I was just talking to Chris Bess about this, so this is all just review for him. 
(laughs) Fascinating. The focus here is on the priesthood of Christ and the fact that his priesthood is not confined to the stipulations of the law, which would mean that his priesthood would have to end. Why doesn't it end? Because Jesus was not made a priest according to the Levitical law. He was made a priest according to a different order of priesthood. He does not follow the Aaronic priesthood. He follows the Melchizedekian priesthood. Verse 1. This Melchizedek, watch this, he is a king, king of Salem, which is ancient Jerusalem. He is also priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, showing the, showing the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham. Wow. To whom Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. He, he uh, was, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is a king of peace. Because that's right, the basic root is shalom, sal- Salem. And so he is king of righteousness, king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Watch this, this is crucial here. But he was made, translation, he was made like the Son of God. See that? He remains a priest forever. So what are we being told? Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek was created after a pattern. He was created after the Son of God. So when he arrives on the scene, Genesis chapter 14, why does this guy come out of nowhere like that? It should strike us because there's really no like lead up to Melchizedek, and there's really no, there's no afterthought of Melchizedek. He just kind of shows up, boom, vanishes, out of the way, right? He's just really mysterious guy. And, and usually the debate is, is that Christ, is that a theophany, right? I would say no. I think he was a real historical person. I think he had a real kingdom somewhere, small. See, when we're thinking kingdoms, you got to think in the time of Abraham, we're not thinking, you know, massive kingdom like Egypt or something like that. Uh, during Abraham's time, I mean, you're thinking mainly nomadic. You're, you're, you're talking a much smaller scale, okay? You're not talking millions and millions of people in Egypt. You're talking about maybe maybe 10,000 people or something like that, okay? So, so what I'm saying is that, that Genesis 14 was patterned after the original archetype, which is the Son of God. You see what I'm saying? So that's why... That's why we can apply Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 110 to Christ. That's why his priesthood goes back to him. That's why Melchizedek came in the first place, was to typify the Son of God. He says, The Lord said on my right hand, He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Back at uh, uh, Psalm 110. He will judge among the nations. He, he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. And then verse 7 is interesting, isn't it? He will drink from the brook of the wayside. Therefore, he'll lift up his head. Huh? What, what do you, <laughs> Robert knows, right? What is that about, Robert? This is just, a, a, you know, you've mentioned this before, but yeah. it's a, a matter of where it, it's, it's an already established thing that's going to happen this is uh it's kind of just a fulfillment of what we know is going to happen it's not any sweat off of the brow yeah 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 yeah. it's easy for him right so it's like what you're getting in what the total picture of psalm 110 is is that you have god's king priest slaughtering 
God's enemies. And then the final picture that you get as you walk away from the scene is that there he is by the brookside refreshing himself. In other words, it's like, right? It's a total 100% victory. It's effortless for him, right? So this, so, so was that effortless for David to do? No. Uh, you know, David, and, and, and David never rid the earth of all of God's enemies either. So this can't possibly be speaking about David, right? Um, furthermore, once you have New Testament attestation, then you understand who this is really talking about. Um, in Hebrews, uh, that's why you find all this language being put together. Okay, any questions about that? Should I read a quote? I got one. Yes, yes, sir. I always thought that the, uh, the people drink from the brook side, I always thought it to be the living water of God. I think it's just metaphorical imagery showing us that 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 the king is going to refresh himself after his slaughter, just kind of pointing to the total victory uh, that he's going to have, and and this is ultimately pointing us towards the the end times when Christ returns and destroys his enemies, right? Which I would correlate with passages like Second uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter one verses six through nine, where when he returns, it says that he will destroy. You know, all those who, who, who have persecuted the church. You know, really amazing. Um, should I read a quote? This is Meredith Klein. This is what he says. He says, Psalm 110 confirms the covenantal interpretation of Zechariah 6, like the revelation of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7. These are the passages we've put together. The revelation, uh, the revelation in this prophetic psalm of David points behind the historical earthly unfolding of redemption, here it is, in its successive covenant administrations to their foundation in the eternal inter-Trinitarian covenant. It's exactly what I'm saying. I'm in good company. I'm in company with Meredith Klein. <laughs> of course, because I got m- many of my concepts from him and other men like Voss and, and, and G.K. Beale and, and other great theologians who have discerned what's going on in these covenants is that they're ultimately going back to their foundation, as Klein says, to the eternal inter-Trinitarian covenant that exists between Father and Son. Listen to this. It directs us to the divine oath commitments that find their fulfillment at the end of the ages in the mission of the incarnate Son. There's two stages of his mission, humiliation and exaltation. Beautiful. Beautiful. And that's what Psalm 110 is all about. There's a time where the son has to come into a time where he has adversaries and enemies and people that wish to destroy him, his kingdom, his people. Well, he's going to destroy them. And when he does, he's going to sit at the right hand of God. Right? This is our hope. Okay, uh, Zechariah chapter 6 is a big one. Zechariah chapter 6. Boy, what an amazing book. Uh, In studying... It's, 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 it's not fair, and I don't think it's even wise to do what I'm doing. <laughs> because there's like, you can't get out of these books. Once you get in them, it's like you're stuck. There's so much here, you don't want to stop studying. Like Zechariah's night visions, I mean, they're just incredible. Zechari- so Zechariah chapter 6, there's seven visions in the book of Zechariah. Each one of these visions is leading up to chapter 6, where, in a sense, God sort of gives us the answer as to how he's going to fulfill all the things that he has been envisioning in these visions, 
right? So for example, uh, keep your finger on six, but go to chapter one, just to give you an example of, of this and what's going on here. I think there's, there's a sense in which we can say that what is envisioned in Zechariah's book is a reconstruction and a reconstitution. A reconstruction and a reconstitution. A reconstruction of what? A reconstruction of the temple. A reconstruction of Jerusalem. A reconstruction of Zion. A reconstitution of what? A reconstitution of the people of God. What's going on in Zechariah's night visions? What's going on in the book of Zechariah? Well, we understand that the people of God have been taken captive into Babylon, right? They're decimated. Their land is decimated. The city's decimated, right? Everything is destroyed. They have to come back and rebuild everything. Even the people. I mean, many of them just became pagan and left. I mean, imagine that. There you are. You're Zechariah, right? And you're seeing what's going on. The people are, are in a captive pagan land that God has always qualified as being unclean and, and profane, and you're living in that land. Many of the people are apostatizing, right? Um, they, they don't even want to walk with God. Uh, some would say that that's what the book of Esther is all about, is about the, the, what happened to the unbelieving remnant that stayed in Babylon. Um, but, but at any rate, that's what, what we see kind of unfolding here. Look at verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. In other words, because the temple was destroyed. De- he said, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, no, 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 that I... Let me see here. Did I miss this? Hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm looking for a verse that... Anyway, I'll, I'll read it again. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. And again, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will, will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. That's interesting. And the question then remains... How in the world is God going to do this? How is God actually going to fulfill this? Um, oh, there's the verse I was looking for, uh, verse uh, 14. Look at verse 14. The angel who was speaking with me was saying this. He was saying this. Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Uh, why is it important for the angel to tell Zechariah that? Because it's like God has a purpose. He has a plan. He has, he has, a, he has a mission. Um, God is extremely zealous. Listen to the language there, right? God is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem. Um, that's, a, that's really important. And it says, and for Zion. But what have, what have we discovered over the, cur- over the course of looking at um, just biblical theology Regarding Zion, what have we discovered about Zion? Anybody? Anyone? It's a type of heaven. It's exactly right. Zion is like code language for heaven, right? That's why, and, and for the new Jerusalem, it's kind of interchangeable. Um, it's amazing that Zion is used in so many different ways. Now, turn to, back to chapter 6. How is God really going to do all of this? Beginning in verse 9. Ready? Because again, we're going to have the emergence of the priest king of God, right? 
It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles from Heldai, Tabijah, Jediah, and you go to the same... Uh, go the same day and enter the house of Jos- uh, Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived in Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of, of Jehoshadak, the high priest. So this guy Joshua, not to be confused with Joshua, as in the book of Joshua. This is a different Joshua. This is a Joshua who was high priest at this time, and he says, put a crown on his head. That's interesting. Because, I forgot where, but in Kings or Chronicles somewhere, right, you weren't supposed to bring the priest into the, uh, the king into the priesthood. You weren't supposed to mingle the two offices, remember? And so that, that, that's a startling uh, uh, revelation right there. Put a crown on the priest? Interesting. Then they said to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. So I would say from verse 11 to verse 12, we have gone from the typological, right? We have gone from, the, from uh, Joshua, the high priest, and, and now we're going to begin to understand what is that symbolism about? What is its true meaning? That's right. He says, Behold, a man whose name is Branch will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. You see that? Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Whose throne? See, this is a very, very, uh, this is a very tricky exegetical decision that you need to make right there in that phrase. He will sit on his throne. So some would say he will sit on uh, his throne, meaning uh, Joshua will sit on his throne. Or when he says he will sit on his throne, the grammar is he will sit on his throne, i.e. Yahweh's throne. Okay, so this is a little bit of a debate among scholars uh, because it's the difference between Joshua saying he'll sit on the throne or it's the difference between Joshua the high priest, which is ultimately depicting Christ, right? Sitting on the throne with Yahweh. So it's just a, it's a, it's a different, it's a diff- it, you know, definitely a different interpretation here that you have to decide. Um, and, and right now I'm tempted to believe in the latter, that when it says he will sit on his throne, it speaks of he will sit on the throne of the Lord of the, or Yahweh. Thus, he will be a priest on Yahweh's throne. And watch this now. This is interesting. And the council of peace will be between the two. What, is your, what does your Bible say? Anybody else have a different translation? Between them both. That's interesting because... That's actually more in keeping with the Hebrew. The Hebrew does not use the word offices. This is a translation, or excuse me, an interpretation on the part of the translator. The translator is trying to grapple with what is this talking about, right? And between them both, both what? Well, both offices. Hmm. That's a big decision that you're making there. Because in the immediate context, we have the branch sitting on his throne. So between them both is both who? See? So both of them, according to many scholars, J.B. Fesco, Meredith Klein, many other uh, uh, biblical scholars, they would say, no, no, no. The them is the two on the throne, Yahweh and the branch. Right? So it says, and then it says this, the council of peace will be between, let's just say, the both of them. And if it is talking about Yahweh and branch, the Lord and the branch, 
then what it's saying is that in between them will be a holy council, a sovereign council, a covenant council between the two. And as a matter of fact, that term, the council of peace, in other, in other scriptures is actually synonymous with a covenant. Like Psalm 83, verse 5. Somebody re- read that real quick. We're out of time and we're in trouble, but that's okay. Somebody read Psalm 83, verse 5. There are many reasons why we should take all of this covenantally, that this is referring to and reflecting some sort of covenant between Yahweh and the branch. Uh, Even the concept of peace is a covenantal idea. So these are two parties involved in this council of peace, Yahweh and the branch. And of course, the branch is identified as the Messiah, who in many, 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 many other places is in covenant with Yahweh. Right? Somebody have that? Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. The word conspire there is the same word here as counsel. And that is put in, in synonymous parallel with covenant. You see that there? They conspire and make a covenant. In other words, it's like you could take it as an explanation. They conspire by making a covenant together against you, <laughs> is, is the meaning of, of, of the text. So, so, so then look at what he says here. He says, now the crown will be a reminder in the temple of the Lord, Helem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. I just wanted to get to verse 15 because it says, those who are far off will build the temple of the Lord. Wow, that's really interesting. So who are those that are far off? There's two, there's two uh, possibilities. Either the Jews who have been taken into Babylon or the nations that throughout the book of Zechariah, the nations who ha- are being promised to come in, which, which to me sounds a lot like texts like Ephesians, also the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where it's, where it's quoting uh, Amos chapter 9 and talking about that by the coming in of the Gentiles, the temple of God is being built. Any questions? Save them for next week. <laughs> We're totally out of time. I'm talking as fast as I can. And I feel kind of bad, but it's like time runs out so quick. We need like a school. <clears throat> Let's go to worship.